And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to join us here in this place this morning, and we trust that you have kept your promise and that you are here. May my words now be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask this in your Son, our Savior, Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. God is love. So in that case, why do we sing so many worship songs about the wrath of God having to be satisfied by Jesus' death on the cross and preach countless sermons based on the same angry God theme? It's a massive contradiction. It's the elephant in the room. Okay, it's not the elephant in the room. And it's not a massive contradiction, but that sentiment does represent a common critique of the traditional Christian teaching about Jesus' death and the forgiveness of God. Those few sentences just now were actually the first part of a longer quote from Steve Chalk, who is a British pastor who, as you can probably tell, does not agree at all with the teaching that Jesus on the cross bore the penalty for our sin. Here's some more of what he said. If it's true that God's anger could only be satisfied through the death of Jesus, then in fact, the God of the Bible isn't unique at all. Instead, his thirst for blood is no different than that of countless other gods of the ancient world. He goes on. Is a God who needs a bloody human sacrifice on a cross in order to forgive any different from a God who requires that virgins have to be sacrificed on the slopes of an angry volcano that's threatening to erupt? And more than that, if this is what Jesus' death on the cross was all about, then God, as it turns out, is a slave to his own anger, unwilling or unable to forgive those who've wronged or misunderstood him without first getting his pound of flesh. And here's the kicker. Why can't God do what he asks us to be able to do? To freely forgive without demanding retribution first. You see the seeming contradiction that Chalk is pointing to here, right? Now, I'm going to argue, of course, that it's not a contradiction, but you can see where the idea comes from. In fact, it can come from a story just like our gospel lesson from today. God demands that we forgive and makes no bones about it. And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father, Jesus teaches, will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from the heart. But is this forgiveness something God 
is unwilling to do himself. Instead, requiring Jesus' penalty-bearing death on the cross. No. And a good reading of this parable will show us why. Now remember, as we begin to look at Jesus' parable of this unforgiving servant, that it comes immediately following the passage on church discipline that we read last week. Jesus described how the church was supposed to discipline itself, beginning at the very ground, one-on-one level. One brother in Christ going to another, pointing out a sin, seeking repentance, and offering forgiveness. And I think we were able to see that that process was all about the gospel. From the very first stage, that one-to-one interaction in which forgiveness is offered because we ourselves have been forgiven, to the very last stage, treating a truly unrepentant sinner as an outsider to the community, but to the end so that we can preach the gospel to them. But Peter, in our reading this morning, hasn't quite digested the good news of church discipline, has he? He's just heard Jesus teaching about going to a brother in Christ about his sin and being reconciled to him. And Peter says, "Uh, but how much do I have to do this? What if I have to keep going to the same person? So-and-so keeps sinning against me. How many times do I have to forgive? Like seven times before I cut this toxic person out of my life forever? And Jesus said to him, not seven times. But I tell you, 77 times. And in some translations, 70 times, 7 times. And the thrust in all translations is the same. You keep doing this, Peter. You keep doing this, church. There is no end to the forgiveness we should show each other. And remember why? Because we have been forgiven. And then Jesus tells this bracing story of a king and an unforgiving servant to make his point. The kingdom of heaven, he says, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children, all his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as we read, went out and ran into another slave who owed him a much smaller amount of money and refused to forgive the same way that he had been forgiven. And when the king hears about it, he says, You wicked slave, I forgave you All that debt, because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And then those terrible sentences. And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you who do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So it's a common critique of Christianity that we worship a bloodthirsty God. 
That's the critique that Steve Chalk is trying to avoid. He says that instead of requiring that Jesus die in our place, paying the price for our sins, God should just forgive without requiring anything by way of recompense. No sacrifice. After all, it's argued, he requires that we forgive, and this story is marshaled as evidence. So how can it be that he's not willing to just forgive us? Why would he instead demand a bloody sacrifice? And of his innocent son, no less. That's not fair. It's capricious and gross. But there's something missing in that analysis. And it's of utmost importance. If we make this kind of effort to defend God from this accusation of unwarranted bloodthirsty violence, if we turn our eyes away from what Jesus Christ is really doing on the cross, we will forget what forgiveness really means. There are two things that we will need to understand about forgiveness. Two points for the sermon this morning. First, we must acknowledge how bad our sin really is. How profound our separation from God is. And that something equally profound has to happen to reconcile us. And second, that the cross of Christ isn't God taking his wrath out on an innocent party. It's God taking that wrath back onto himself. So the first thing that we have to get straight is the depth of our sin. Now it's easy to think that God, who is love, should just forgive us when we mess up. And that's especially easy to think if we underestimate our sin. If we convince ourselves that we do pretty well most of the time, we can also convince ourselves that God ought to be forgiving the few times we do mess up. That he should just let it go. Wave his hand and say, don't worry about it. You're pretty good most of the time. But in thinking that, we are forgetting ourselves. We're forgetting what John calls the lusts of the flesh. The eyes and the pride of life. We're forgetting that, as Jeremiah says, the human heart is deceitful above all things. We're forgetting Paul's assertion that the wages of sin is death. And his description of us, of you and me in Romans chapter 3. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And on the flip side, we're forgetting how holy and just God is. How God is light, as John writes in his first epistle. And in him there is no darkness and can be no darkness at all. If the Bible tells one story about humanity. It's that we are desperate sinners. And when we are peeled back, opened up, and honest with ourselves, the truth becomes clear. We are very far from God. Dead, in fact, in trespasses and sins. That's the Bible's witness in Ephesians chapter 2. 
Something big is going to have to happen to bring us home. The Lord waving his hand at sin and saying, forget about it, isn't going to cut it. And by the way, you know what? You know that waving your hand and saying forget about it doesn't cut it for you either. We all know that this is true, even in the humdrum day-to-day interactions of our own lives. When someone sins against us, we often try to just forgive without actually dealing with the sin. We don't go to the person as Jesus had ju- has just instructed us in Matthew 18. We think, oh, they probably didn't mean it. It's no big deal. I'll just forget about it. But then it turns out we can't forget. It sticks in our craw and we can't get it out of our heads. And finally, after a time of simmering resentment, making excuses for ourselves and avoiding the other person, we find that this thing that we thought was so small, so insignificant that we didn't have to deal about it, that we could just forget, something this small has killed the relationship completely. Sin that is not definitively dealt with, that is not confessed and forgiven, festers and kills. Okay, so sin cannot be waved away. It can't be forgotten about. It can't be just forgiven. But a sacrifice? It seems so barbaric and over the top. Is such a thing, the innocent son of God suffering on a criminal's cross, really necessary? But listen. Here is the second thing we have to get straight to understand God's forgiveness and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Forgiveness always requires sacrifice. Every time. Always. Forgiveness always requires sacrifice. And our own shoulders are not strong enough to bear it. Think of it like this, in that little interpersonal drama that I just described and that we have all experienced. If you were to go to the person who wronged you and actually forgive them, rather than letting that hurt fester, that involves taking the punishment that you would like to inflict on them and absorbing it back into yourself. This is what Jesus means when he says to turn the other cheek. Here again, this involves taking a blow and then allowing the debt, the punch that you'd like to throw in retribution, be absorbed back onto yourself. This is what Joseph does with his brother. His forgiveness involves not giving them the punishment that they deserve, but absorbing they're wrong onto himself. And that's exactly what's happening in Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant. When a financial debt is forgiven, it only looks like it just vanishes, right? The king forgives his slave a 10,000 talent debt. Poof, it's gone. But that's not how this actually works. Anyone who has actually forgiven a huge debt 
or really turned the other cheek or truly forgiven anyone a real sin knows that a debt does not just vanish. It's not quote unquote just forgiven. In actual fact, a debt is always paid. Now, here it's done simply with just a few words your debt is forgiven. But in actual fact, that debt is paid. It is not paid by the slave in Jesus' parable. It is absorbed by the king. He is out those 10,000 talents. He takes the debt back onto himself. He pays the cost. This is what Steve Chalk misses. And what we cannot afford to miss if we want to understand the profundity of what God is doing on the cross to rescue us from sin. Our God is Trinity, three and one. Jesus on the cross and his Father in heaven are one. That is God. Far from meeting out his wrathful punishment on some innocent other, just because he's bloodthirsty and needs his pound of flesh, God is taking the punishment we deserve back onto himself. It is poured out on his son, yes, but the son is a full member of the oneness of the Godhead, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, true God from true God. And God, Because he is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has shoulders strong enough to bear the debt of the entire world. This is actually the only reason a Christian can forgive, can actually turn the other cheek. Because our shoulders don't need to bear the debt. Our king does that. When a Christian forgives, you don't actually take the debt back onto yourself, though it still often in worldly terms feels that way. It feels like you're being wronged and nothing's being done about it. But that's the tempter, trying to get you to think of yourself as the king in Jesus' story, the ever-wronged, sinless party. But you're not the king. In truth, we are the slave. We require forgiveness. We are the ones who need to be forgiven as much or more than we ever need to dole it out. So let us remember where that debt is finally laid. On the king. It is not laid on us. Not ultimately. We forgive Because we have been forgiven. And all those debts, every talent, every denarius, every penny, every single sin is laid on Christ's shoulders at the cross. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is why Jesus' answer to Peter is so expansive. How many times must I forgive? Do it again 
and again and again. And why? Because it is your king who finally bears all your debts. Imagine for a moment that the ungrateful slave owed a debt by his fellow servant had gone back to the king with this need. Now, it's always iffy to add to Jesus' parables. We don't want to make Jesus say more than he's actually saying, but I'm betting that this king pays off that other debt too, taking that debt back onto himself as well. This is God, after all. He will forgive 77 times. 70 times 7. On and on, the slave is free to pass the debt up the chain. This king is a debt forgiver. But the tragedy of the story Jesus tells, and this is Jesus' main point, And the fundamental thing we should take away from this parable, the tragedy is that this ungrateful slave forgot the extent of his own forgiveness. He didn't turn and forgive another because he had forgotten how much he'd been forgiven. Jesus' point is pretty simple. Don't do that. Don't forget how much You have been forgiven. Remember the good news of the gospel and the weight of the sin that your king took onto himself for you. Jesus is, as we remind ourselves each week, the propitiation for our sins. He stands in our place between our sin and a holy God, absorbing the wrath that we deserve. From the cross, Jesus cries, Father, forgive them. And then it is finished. With those words and that sacrifice, Jesus shows us what forgiveness really is. That God doesn't forgive you just because. Or because you're basically a pretty good person most of the time. Or because he desires to ignore your sin or wave it away. He forgives because he, as Almighty God, three and one, has taken the deserved punishment for your sin back onto himself. Because no debt can just go away. All debts go somewhere. And Almighty God has paid yours. He takes care of your sin forever. He loves you, forgiving you, because the ultimate sacrifice has been made for you. God is Trinity, three and one. He is not taking his wrath out on someone else, the innocent Jesus. He's taking the just penalty for sin back onto himself, in Jesus. Now, Jesus Christ, eternal Son of God, used his last earthly breaths, wounded and dying, to ask the Almighty Father to forgive you. Not because your debt had vanished or could be forgotten, but because he himself had borne it. And it is because of that, the debt that Jesus bore, the debt that your Heavenly Father absorbed, 
It is because of that that you can be and are in Christ forgiven. Amen.